You're listening to the Real Estate Radio Hour, the show that brings you unfiltered stories and insight from the Twin Cities real estate world with your hosts, Chris Rooney, broker at Remax Preferred, and Andy Presky, leader of the Preferred Home Team at Remax Advantage Plus. Good morning, guys. Hello, hello. Good Happy morning. Thursday. Can you believe how fast Thursday came this week? Everything goes so fast. It's crazy. These short weeks when Monday's the short day or Monday's the day off, they always kill me because it, it just throws my whole week for a loop. Yeah. I can't get on track all week. What's I've going been, on? I've been preparing uh, my personal home for sale. And, oh, uh, so you sold your house in Minnetonka and yep. you're, and now you're selling your house in Prior Lake. Yep. Yep. And you're going to move Good. to a different house in Prior Lake. That's the plan. That's a lot of real estate to handle. Yeah, my, uh, if you ask my wife, we've done it quite a few times and uh, she doesn't want to keep uh, continuing this. She, just wants moving her, she wants like a permanent house. But I kinda, yeah, but I kind of really like doing it. I love doing it. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting because I've always had a lot of real estate and getting down to, I mean, like one house would be really interesting. And, and fun. And, and it's not because, I mean, it, it's kind of almost a sickness. Like I gotta go, I gotta buy stuff and, and I like doing it. And I, you know, you find uh, opportunities and, uh, and I go for them. So it's a problem. It's always all of us buddies have always been impressed that Christine has been the one woman in his life, multiple houses, one woman. <laughs> oh, Andy. <laughs> Andrew Presky, you are you are treading on dangerous well, think about it. He likes to keep moving. He likes new. He likes fresh. I'm like, what? <laughs> we know it's, we knew it Christine early. Is, it's one Christine of them days. Is one of, it, she's a catch. He, he wouldn't want to move on to anyone else from Christine. Courtney, let me put it this way. I don't think Chris Rooney's ever even had an oil change on one of his cars. He, he, he flips them so fast, right? <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. Yeah, I don't have because I don't have oil in my car. The electric so, ones too. Do you have an electric yeah. car? They don't have oil. Yeah. Well, we got some feedback. We got some feedback last week about um, staying on topic, and as a result, <laughs> you can tell who who's for this and who's. We're gonna not. try it. We're gonna try it. We're gonna try it. We came up with a new little. Uh, show structure today and we're we're excited to kind of segment this out kind of like it was on the old wcco show so um what's new in real estate this week guys i think what's new in real estate i don't think a lot has changed really um we're seeing uh we're involved i was involved in a, a multiple offer on one side and it was my opportunity that we did come in as as strong and uh, it was interesting because I end up finding out from the realtor, which they're not supposed to say uh, what it is, but uh, got a good indication that we were about thirty to thirty-five thousand off. <laughs> Holy moly! Yeah, and I, Andy, I think I saw something on Instagram that you had one that went uh, had a hundred showings, and I mean, yeah. crazy. Yeah, they. Uh, I even had some agents calling me saying, "Oh, you underpriced it. You you did it wrong." And I'm like, "Oh, di did I really do it wrong when I got literally was it forty thousand over asking price? I think I did it right, and I think you don't know what you're doing." But I'm <laughs> saying that nicely to them, respectfully. But no, the idea there is that if you have something that a lot of people want, and the idea there, you know, when you're an agent, okay, so why why do you pay a real estate agent? So a real estate agent goes out there and tries to fetch you the highest price the market will bear. So in that environment, if you price something too high, the people will not come out. They just don't. Nobody, I'm still telling you, people don't want to overprice um, when it's up for sale. It's like having anything up for sale. You, you a gross, your favorite grocery item, your favorite pair of jeans, you know what you're going to pay for those jeans and you're not going to overpay for them. And so what people do is they look at houses kind of the same way and they go, you know, this is a really nice house, but it's 30,000 overpriced. Let's go after the other property. So you kind of create like your own detriment by overpricing versus if you price correctly and now you have like, like I, and this is no joke. We had a hundred showings in like two days on this property and the consumer saw the consumer heard the other consumer talking about writing the offer. They got competitive amongst each other. And when consumers compete, the seller wins. It's when you're competing with other listings that it's not as, is 
there's not that same environment. When people are standing like at an auction, same concept. You know, they sit there and they're, well, we want to get it. They want to get it. They're going to go for it. I heard he's doing cash. We should offer cash. So all of a sudden you get, you know, 20 some offers on a property. And at the top, you've got cash offers, no contingent, no inspection, closing in seven days. On the bottom, I had, you know, rural residential, 0% down with, you know, a 45-day closing, home inspections, appraisal clauses. And so I'm like, you're, you know, you're not even competitive, you know? And so I feel bad for the people on the bottom because they're probably really nice people on those offers. But at the end of the day, when I'm a listing agent, I represent my client and it's my job to get them the most money I possibly can get away with. Right. There's kind of, there's, yeah, there's kind of a phenomenon now too that, and I think the, the feeling of how you did that, what you did was I think sometimes when you set the price to where it's at, you're trying to, you're setting the value of that home by going lower you're letting the buyer set the value of what they feel it's worth. Sometimes if you price it right, it's almost like the buyer's like, well, that's what it's worth. And now you got to pay too much over. When you set it low, they're thinking, hey, this is what it's worth to me. And then it, it pushes them up. And so maybe what Andy did there, if Andy would have you know, listed at $25,000 higher than that, he might have not gotten 15,000 more at that point. You know, because it would have been more priced, right? But by pricing it lower, people are like, oh my God, this is so underpriced and I love it. And this is the way I want it. Oh, what did that person say? Oh, they're doing this. Oh, and then bang. And that's what happened. And then now you're, yeah, like you said, you know, it's a trick. You can't do it every single time, but there's a, yeah. it's a very interesting. No, and thing it, it's a price point about. thing too. We were under 300. Um, I, I did three last week where they were all under 300 and it was just busy, busy, busy. And so, you know, the other cool thing though is this. Like I, I'm sending out letters now this week saying, hey, we just raised the bar $20,000 on the price range in your neighborhood. You want to learn more about it? Give us a call. And here's what we did. And, and you're kind of, you're, I hate to sound arrogant, but you're welcome. We, we just literally broke the barrier of that price point because it hasn't been done before. But now here's the sad thing. Chris and I have dealt with this too, where now you go out there and you do find a new buyer and the buyer comes in and they want to use financing on the next property you list. And the appraisers will come in and go, Oh, well, that sold for cash. So that doesn't count. I'm like, that is the ultimate sale is a cash sale. That shows somebody with money is willing to make that kind of an investment. And they want to throw that comp out because it's cash. You had that happen, Chris? Yeah, that yeah. would make me pretty furious if that happened. I haven't had that, but I wouldn't like it because you're absolutely right. Do you guys think that, how long do people typically look for a house on the market? Like how long, how long, when do they start? And how much later do they typically buy? I've had someone that's just looked at one house and I've had another person that's looked for three years. Yeah. I mean, what do you so think the average is? I think people, I think people might look at, at the average because I mean, we have this online thing now. So I think a lot of people do their searching ahead of time where it used to be, hey, let's just see what the heck is out there. You know, now they can do that all online. But then once they get to one, I mean, I'd say under 10 houses, wouldn't you say, Andy? And maybe with yeah, you know, and I look at it too. This is what's crazy. So shopping, being a, a real estate shopper, which everybody thinks are in the market is different. It's hard to I, identify the people. Like I, I personally, as an agent, identify the buyers from the, the shoppers. Um, you know, a buyer is somebody that is willing to talk to a lender and get their qualification letter done. They're willing to have all of the, as I call it, the, the you know, you're going out hunting bear, but you don't have anything in your gun, right? That's the shoppers. Shoppers, oh, I'd buy that, I'd do this, they're all talk. So once you get past that phase of entertaining yourself and, oh, I would have never paid that, I would now you get into the game and you're actually writing real offers. Most uh, clients that we see out there right now, depending on their personality type, they don't want to listen. So they come in and they write offers under asking price and they keep missing. They miss, 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 miss. About the seventh time they write an offer, they finally say, all right, fine, put it a thousand or two thousand over asking price. Then they get it, you know, or whatever. Um, the buyer that comes in right away that gets qualified, finds a house they want, listens to their agent, gets the property probably the first one they write. So it just, it really depends on if you're, if you're a buyer and you've been struggling, you've been writing multiple offers, really look at how you're writing your offers because you shouldn't have to write 10 or 15 offers. That shows me that you're probably defying the odds a little bit and saying, well, if I don't get it, I don't care. So maybe you're still more of a shopper than a buyer. And that's okay too. You know, just I always say, just be careful with your agents too, because agents will get fatigued on you as a buyer as well. And they get to the point of where they get paid to do their job, but now you've made them do it 10 times. And then they're going to be like, ah, fooey, I'm out. 
And then you just, you know, lost a great agent working for you. The market is crazy right now and people are changing what they want. So, so do you think that people's, people's needs have definitely changed since COVID started, but they, they're also changing what they need in terms of who they're living with, which we've been talking about a lot lately. Uh, multi-generational housing is our topic for today because we talk about it all the time with Rooneyville. And I got these cool sound effects, so I'm going to play one of them as we, as we transition into segment two. Is that Andy? You play guitar, Andy? Uh, well, of course I don't. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's that's our that's our that's our kind of awkward transition into multi-generational housing today, and hopefully we'll get really smooth with our transitions as we as we explore this new this we do, do too Courtney. thank you <laughs> <laughs> but we talk about multi-generational housing every single week with rooneyville so um after looking into some of the stats multi-generational housing is on the rise what do you guys think about that that's why rooney understands that and that's why he's looking at rooneyville but i i think it is i mean especially and you and you said it courtney with uh the little COVID thing here too. Um, there's a lot of talk about that, but that's what hit Italy really hard as well, because mm -hmm. of the multi-generational and some of the younger people uh, were living with, you know, extended relatives and higher. And that's where a lot of the people were uh, um, dying from. That my kid was right in the middle of that whole thing. And uh, was your said, was your kid in Italy when that happened? Yeah, yeah, he was the yeah he was in it. And he, I mean, he got they got sent to their apartment. They had to stay. And um, they could go out and get food. And I mean, th that's about it. I mean, from a grocery store. And, but what was happening is that a lot of the people that were dying were, I mean, I would say, you know, uh, I don't know what percentage, but a huge percentage, a lot more than America, live together in multi-generational situations. I mean, the houses stay in their family um, forever. And that's what was happening. Some of the younger kids were getting sick and they got the older ones sick and then they would pass away. And I think that's why they got hit really hard. But um, on the, I think on the opposite end, that's why multi-generational multi living is uh, one of the benefits, you know, of people getting old and getting, you know, Andy, Andy talked about this, I think it was uh, last week or the week before, about uh, how much people are paying for assisted living, you know, and to be into that kind of thing. And, and that's one of the reasons that people might jump into multi-generational. I thought it was interesting that Pew Research, uh, this is actually from 2016, so the numbers are a little bit old, just, just with the rise that we are kind of experiencing here locally, but this is a graph of the last 70 years in housing and how you saw a huge dip in multi-generational housing, but now 20% of families are multi-generational and they define that as at least two adult generations or grandparents and grandchildren younger than 25 living in the same house. That's really interesting to see those stats because that's a lot higher than what, you know, we, at least I grew up with, but it's also a lot higher than what I see in my own neighborhood. But with the new construction, you guys are seeing a lot more multi-generational buyers coming into the market. You know, and I think a lot of us kind of jokingly think of like the old Willy Wonka and that movie, do you remember Willy Wonka, you guys? Yeah. And the grandparents are all in the same bed with their toes together. And I think about, oh my God, that'd be horrible. And, and then yet again, as from a kid's perspective, you're like, that'd be great. You know, hanging out with your favorite grandpa and having access to them and their, all their experiences in life and all the cool things they can bring. I think, you know, when we've looked at the research, I think a lot of people, American culture is different where it's people get old, they retire too young per se, and then also they get to the point of where they can't put their socks on, shove them into a nursing home or shove them into senior housing. And I, I, I'm just personally one of those guys that thinks that's kind of a shame. And I, I actually admire other cultures where they embrace the, the elderly, if you want to call them that, um, or grandma and grandpa, whatever you want to call them. They say, hey, why don't you come live with us? We'll put your socks on. No big deal. You know, but then you watch the kids in the afternoon when I have to be on the conference calls or whatever. And so it's, I think there's a lot of advantages to having, you know, multi-generational living. And I don't think it's, it's, it's not a social thing or a, a class or a money thing as much as it is a, just let's take care of each other, you know, and then why waste the money? Um, you know, one of my, one of my last clients here this last week, we were putting uh, an offer together uh, to, or to list their home and move to a senior apartment to literally move in there. Thought it'd be easier living than a townhouse. And 
as COVID hit, what was really interesting to me was she goes, there used to be a one year plus waiting list to get into this apartment. And she goes, now there's 11 open units on the floor that I'm on and there's nobody standing in line to fill these apartments. So I think what's been happening is there's a lot of people that have been, you know, with COVID and all these other things, nervous about cluster housing and, and group living and they're outside of their families. And so the, the apartment scene has really cooled off um, at the senior level. I mean, to the point of where it was ridiculous how hot it was. And now it's probably back to where it should be a little more normal, but. Um, I was reading some stats this morning on how there was such a huge push for independence, uh, like independence of adult children in from the seventies forward. And it's really had people forego like a sense of community. And there's a lot more neighborhoods or like units. I, I don't know if it's buildings or if it's neighborhoods or communities or kind of a combination of both where it's it's not just multi-generational, but it's also within one family, but it's also multiple families kind of coming together to create their own village almost and how that creates a stronger sense of community and it it helps people survive and gives them support. And you know it's not just grandparents helping out the grandkids or working parents that need grandparents in the house or preventing parents from going to a nursing home, but it's also just that sense of community that people really crave. Yeah, there, there was a book uh, several years ago written an author out of the Twin Cities here actually uh, called The Blue Zone. And it talked about you know all the uh, areas where there's people that are successfully living into their 100 year plus you know age. And most of those communities had several common denominators. One of them was the sense of community. And out of the top 10, seven of the countries that, that were involved in this survey that were in the top 10 did not have a word for retirement in their, in their language. So it's interesting. Wow. That, yeah. They were, they were showing the, the story that the, the, uh, we were at a presentation, of course, and they show this, his name was Giuseppe. And he was uh, this Greek guy who was up working on his fence and they show him, he's a little old man and he's working on his fence. And they said, here's Giuseppe the next day. And they show him, they show a, a operating room and there's a man laying on the table and everybody gasped and goes, oh my God, he got hurt when he was doing the fence. They said, he's actually the surgeon. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. I think that there's something to be said for a sense of purpose and whether that's giving, yeah. pouring yourself into your community or your work or whatever it is, and not just stopping everything for the sake of stopping everything. Right. Like, well, what, I think, what think do you do? Just for a second too, you, you kind of get into that stopping because social security says at 65, you're eligible. So now you shouldn't work. Right. Well, okay. Great. If you can't, I mean, but in our culture, guys, I tell you what, you're going to, I think in my, I'm fifth 49 or whatever I am. Um, you'll see people my age. I don't think they're going to be retiring at 65. I think they're going to be well yeah. into their seventies and eighties. They don't have the money, you know, unless they inherit wealth. Um, I think you'll see a lot of opportunities for multi-generational housing because of financial interests or, you know, whatever. And I think that there's something to be said for having purpose, you know, just like we were talking about. So you have a job or you have a volunteering position or whatever it is, and then yet you still want to vacation and see the world and do good things. And that's right. You wake up every morning. The other thing with this blue zone, and I highly recommend you read the book. They had some interesting dietary habits. They all had some version of exercise. There was always some uh, sense of community. And there was a couple of things like the, most of their diets were, were uh, high concentrations of or higher concentrations of vegetable and like nuts and dried fruits. And they would all, most of them had red wine in their diets, at least one glass a day. And so it was kind of an interesting combination of, you know, is it stress relief? Is it healthy eating? Um, you know, or the, the ones uh, is five out of the 10 had where once a week they would, they called it engorging with meat. So they would have a, hey, Uncle Billy cooked a, you know, a lamb or something like that, or a pig. And then they would go and just have like the, the meat day, right? But everything else was heavily vegetable uh, dietary. Um, but anyway, kind of interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for purpose. And, and sometimes you get that purpose out of um, cohabitating with younger generations or, or helping the younger yeah. generations learn, right. grow, Absolutely. live. I thought it was interesting to see the Minnesota numbers because the, the nationwide numbers were about 20% of family households are multi-generational, but in Minnesota, and this is from Stacker, it's not from the same research center. So their, their definitions may be slightly different, but the total multi-generational housing households in Minnesota 
is 43,658, which is about 2% of the total households in the state. Um, and we are actually at the bottom of, uh, in terms of like ranking of states that have multi-generational households, we're in the last five, which is interesting because in the last year, you've seen so such a huge increase in people looking for this. So it's almost like we're, we're, we're now jumping on the bandwagon with everything that's going on in the world. Do you think that that's um, more because of COVID or do you think it's just taking longer for that multi-generational urge to hit Minnesota? Well, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, families that also don't report what they're doing because of privacy reasons. And I think that there's a lot of people that have grandma or grandpa living with them and they don't report it properly. So I, I would say those numbers, in my opinion, would be off significantly um, under 2%. But now you got to remember that statewide. So you do have the, the, you know, individual that lives up in the woods by themselves on 20 acres. And then you have, you know, the apartment in Minneapolis that has, you know, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and the grandkids living with them. So I've seen um, a little bit of everything. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I look at it like it's not a problem per se, but I think that there's, you know, the National Association of uh, Home Builders, they've done surveys where they were saying that 43% of the people buying have the need for some kind of additional multi-generational, meaning like, you know, maybe my kid comes back after college and wants to live at my house. That's, you know, that that's still my child, but it's like, they're an adult now, they're educated, they're getting their feet wet in the world and, you know, getting out there. And so there, there's a need for that as well. Um, or, you know, hey, again, kind of going back to all dad needs is somebody to put his socks on in the morning and he's set for the whole day. That's easy, right? I mean, you know, and kind of let him do his thing. And, and in the meantime, he helps you fix all the uh, broken stuff in your house. <laughs> Where do you think people are finding multi, like, can you find existing houses right now that are set up for multi-generational living? Or do you think people are really going for that new construction option where they have the mother-in-law suite that's kind of has its own entrance and has a separate living quarters? You know, with, with just let's talk new construction for a second. I, I would I would say I have a good portion of my people coming in right now where they'll say, hey, we want the basement finished with a separate little like wet bar area, not a full kitchen, but kind of a little you know, an area where if somebody lives downstairs, they could make their own dinners and stay downstairs, right? And there, I see that a lot. I mean, I actually see that probably on half the houses I build where somebody wow. says, oh yeah, where they want the basement finished. And it's because there's actually somebody that's going to live down there. Now, the main level, you know, living, I see that a lot with the immigrant, uh, you know, kind of first, um, uh, English is a second language, new to America, they want mom and dad to come visit for a month, for example, in the summer. Sure. And they don't want them to go up and downstairs because they respect their elders. And they, they're like, hey, let's build them an awesome place where they feel really comfortable. So when they come to visit, they feel like they're at home and they have their own space. Um, and I think that's so cool. I mean, I, I'm one of those guys. I'm kind of a junkie for that stuff. I think it's cool to respect, you know, that situation. And so but what happens with housing is that it adds so much to try to retro because there's only so many boxes that you can literally if you. You got your kitchen, you have your family room, you have your office, you have your main floor bathroom and your mudroom. And then, okay, now you want to add a formal dining room and a bedroom and a master bathroom. It makes a really big footprint and an expensive yeah. house to build. Right. So, so also you add 65,000 to the average build that another main level bathroom bedroom combo, which is kind of the average is what I see quite frequently, unless you find a floor plan that's already big enough to adapt that. But if you do the math, most people say, oh, it's not that much. Do the math between the model that you're looking at that has all that stuff in it and the one that doesn't, and it's forty-five to sixty-five thousand more to put that bedroom on the main level. That's interesting because they did a there was a a study that I read that said that retrofitting a house like a garage to turn it into a actual living space, and this could be somewhere else uh, where the cost of construction. I think this was actually in California, which is the cost right. of the construction is more expensive there. But um, it was like $120,000 on average to add a living space to an existing house. Yeah. So that's yeah. a big difference when you're talking about editing a floor plan to add that on from the start versus trying to retrofit a house for that. Well, we, we've had people that come in too with sport courts, you know, kind of talking about that kind of COVID culture that we have now where people want to stay at home and have a safe place for their kids to exercise. And you build that interior gym and then you have people going, well, wow. I'm at 650 or 750 for that house by the time I'm done with everything I want and my budget's 500. So then they'll go out and they'll look for a house for 150 or 350,000. 
400,000. So they sacrificed a little bit and they say, okay, now the basement's not finished, but we want you guys to come out and finish the basement and add a sport court. Well, the basement's 85,000 to finish the basement. The sport court's about 140,000 at the sport court at that point. And they're like, that's like double what it is when it's new. And you're like, yeah. It's because it it's built into the floor plan. You don't have to right. retrofit the house. Well, think about it. We have the excavator out there. The excavator digs the whole basement. It's probably an extra 200 bucks from the dig the, the sport court versus sending them out there separate. It's five grand, you know? Yeah. Well, so do you think that people are, are people retrofit? I mean, I suppose it's pretty easy to finish a basement and turn that into a separate mother-in-law suite. But if you want it to be, you know, if you're moving in and your parents are able-bodied right now, and you kind of want to have your own living spaces within the house, can you get that permitted to have two totally separate living spaces within one house in the Twin Cities? Or does that kind of depend on the city? 100% the city. But, you know, the, like a lot of houses, like I was just doing one up in Forest Lake and I hope they're listening because I don't, I don't care. I'd like to argue with you about this. Um, I mean, and I mean that in a nice way, right? For my client, because my client simply wanted to put a stove in the basement because his mother wants to live in their lower level and wanted to literally do her baking. And she doesn't want to have to come upstairs every time to use the oven when she wants to bake something to share with the family. So she wanted her own oven. The city would not give me a building permit until I took the oven off of the floor plan. That's That's crazy. It's totally, plus I'm like, who's the city to tell you that you can't have four kitchens in your house. I want one on every level, you know, and I want one out in my garage. You know, it's like, so they, they try to control the zoning because they, they're ultimately, I get it. They're trying to protect the other neighbors so that you don't turn it into some kind of an apartment or whatever. Right. And, and whatever's wrong with that, I don't know, but I, I still look at, you know, people are people. And if you have housing needs in your community, regardless if it's renting, multi-generational, multi people in one house, who cares? You know, it's like, it's just that, that that's the way we set it up. So, you know, it is a little bit of a fight. I know there's several companies that are out there that are getting their developments their new housing developments approved where they actually have the ability to put the, they call it the mother-in-law suite, which is not always the case. Sometimes it's the father-in-law or it's the, the college kid or whatever, but they still have where they'll have the three car garage and the third stall actually connects right to their unit. And then they go in and they have their own little, you know, kitchenette um, dining area, family room, and then bedroom and, and, and uh, bathroom. And, but there always has to be a door connecting to the main level of the home to get it approved. They sure. won't usually approve it without having a, a walkway between the two prop, the two um, living areas. Do you think that that's going to increase or decrease property values moving forward? Like, do you think this is a long-term trend or do you think this is just kind of a, you know, generational trend? Well, I think a lot of people think they can just, oh, let's just make this work. And so you see a lot of people buying the house that they want first. And then they're like, well, we'll figure out what to do with, with the other family members when they decide that this is what they need versus the customer that says, hey, I'm living with my mother-in-law right now and I, I want to build a new house. And so here's what we want for her. And then, and then you sit down and actually design the mother-in-law space or the father-in-law space. But you know, the thing that comes down to is this. I just I think that our, our living needs change from the time you're a young person to the time that you're you know, being hauled away. It, it, it's a, it, your, your housing needs change constantly. And, you know, from, you know, having lots of babies around the house to having no babies to having, you know, the ability to roll around your house because you, you hurt your knee and, but you don't necessarily need, you don't want to move. So you want to retrofit your house for, you know, for a couple of years and then hopefully get back up on your feet again, you know? So it's like, there's a lot of things that change. And I think that the communities that we live in need to become service-minded, understanding that people don't want to move. I don't think people want to move. They only move because they feel that they can't change the house affordably to what they really need. So they end up having to move. So do you think that more, uh, are you, do your parents live with you, Andy? No. But they live close, don't they? Yeah, they, uh, they do. They live right over uh, just down the road between my other brother, my younger brother, Tommy and myself, we've got uh, pretty close, you know what I mean? And they're, they're still pretty spry. I mean, these guys are up and going to, out of, you know, going on vacations and re- live in retirement pretty good, but you know, every once in a while you get that, you know, hey, I'm uh, not feeling so good. You, you go, oh. But they're close, so you can stop by. Do you, so yeah. I can see the well, value of mother, having. That's my mother, but she'll tell you I don't stop by enough. <laughs> Andrew? Every night for dinner, we should be stopping by. Oh boy. Well, maybe that's, maybe you guys will be doing something multi-generational. I mean. I have no problem with that. As long as we, you know, like in the future, I've, I've told that to both my parents. I've said, I would love the opportunity to help you out. I'm not going to be a nurse. I mean, I, I'd be the guy though that, Hey, I'll put your socks on. I'll help you get up in the morning. I'll, 
get you into the car, take you to an appointment, whatever. That stuff's easy. I mean, or somebody else in the family can help you with that. That's what we're all about, you know. But on the other hand, you know, you kind of get to a point of where everybody, I don't care what age you are, you still want to have your own space. Oh, so for sure. If you can, right? So, you know, they want to watch their own movies or do their own thing or not be bugged for a couple hours. I get that. I mean, heck, I'm that way and I'm, you know. So having that, I think having that separate living quarters, because, you know, as the generation that grew up with independence and, and fend for yourself and, and figure it out on your own, I think that having that independence is still important, even in that community setting. So, uh, so, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the multi-generational housing that allows people to live independently while still contributing to the greater whole is probably what we're going to see more of in the future. If yeah, and I mean, and we're, we're, we're talking something different than when, hey, mom had surgery, so she's, mm -hmm. now we set up a temporary bed in the family room because it's all one level, you know, or something to make it easy to help take care of her for a couple of weeks so she gets back on her feet. That's different. We're totally. talking about more of a long-term solution where you live together and you want to give each other the respective space and, and uh, but yet still enjoy that sense of community. And Financially, do you think that people are pooling their resources to get kind of that higher end house then with the new construction or, or is it trying to make it work on the same budget? You know, it's funny. I just, I just met with a family that they were talking about having three master suites in the house. And I was like, as the, I joked around kind of with the dad saying, well, you're not real confident. Your kid's getting married and moving out of the house and, you know, and making it too, or the hot tub's too warm. They're never going to want to leave. Right. So, <laughs> but you know, and maybe, but maybe that's his plan. Maybe he doesn't want his family to ever move away, or maybe he doesn't want them to ever feel like they have to move away and that they're always welcome. Uh, how, how do you, how do you get you know angry about that? You can't. So, yeah. you know, it, it's one of those things where I think with new construction and people have the budget, you know, just like the people that have the cabins, people that have big money and they have the place up north, they build their family a guest cabin or they build them a whatever because they have the money to do it. Sure. On the other hand, you know, you look at like where um, some families, they, they don't have that extra allowance or, or budget. And now you've got 25 people sleeping on the family room floor on a Saturday night up at the cabin. And there's a lot of fun with that too. But yeah. it's not a permanent living, you know, you wouldn't want to live that way. But for a couple of big weekends, it's kind of fun. Well, that's, and that kind of, Rick and I have, my husband and I have always talked about buying land and having the ability to let our kids build a house on the land in the future, which sounds has always, it's always been more his thing than mine. Like that's always sounded a little bit creepy to me to say, okay, kids, you're, you're never moving away. You're staying with us forever. But as I get older, I kind of see the value of that, especially as housing prices continue to rise and it becomes less affordable uh, for younger people to buy or build affordability is, is at an all-time high, but that's all relative. The price of housing has gone up so significantly that getting what you want is more expensive. And so being able to offer that to them is kind of enticing. I have two customers right now actually actively looking for land. So if you have land where we can do that on, we, you know, there's a, there was a, we just looked at a hundred acre piece of land out on the West Metro and old barn on one side, beautiful, you know, and, and of course it's hard not to fall in love with that cool old architecture. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, so he's like, oh, I'll renovate the barn and keep the barn. I want to build my own house. And then that's the exact same thing is that they want to take that hundred acres and they wanted to divide it into 10 acre parcels. And he goes, I want to pick my neighbors. He goes, Andy, I'd sell you a lot in the back. I want to sell my kid a lot. I want to give my daughter a lot. He goes, I've got a brother. He goes, I've got two of my concrete guys. I want to, you know, offer yeah. because I want my own kind of my own little fun community. So it's and, almost like curating your own, your own neighborhood. Seriously. And, you know, the only challenge with that is, is timing. So does everybody have the 200 grand to pay for that lot right now mm -hmm. to sit on it, to maybe build on it? Or does everybody up and sell their houses and move together, you know, that quick? Number one, but number two, you know, the zoning, we, we find a lot of times you follow the MUSA line or the, you know, the sewer line, you look at, there's a, there's what they call a composition plan that you can pull up at most cities. Okay. So you go on their website, you go to the planning commission, you look at the comp plan, and then you look at the zoning that that area has, and you'll say, oh, wow, this is agriculture. Call the city planner and say, hey, when do you see city sewer and water hitting this neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And if they say it's over 10 years, it, it's, it's ag. You know, at that point, you're ag. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be like farming prices, farming taxes. You're going to be living like a farmer, which is great, because then you can have 100 acres and only pay, you know, three grand a year in taxes. And even though you paid a million dollars for it, you know, or whatever you paid. Sure. So, you know, farmland too, around the Twin Cities, I've seen everywhere from 8,500 to 12,500 for per acre. 
um, for values. And but most of the time, those cities when they're when they're zoned ag, they'll let you split the lots into 40 acre parcels. Very rarely will they ever let you go smaller than that. So with that fantasy, let's give everybody 10 acres I just talked about. That's you'd have to get re, it rezoned, and you'd have to go to a different kind from ag to an actual residential. It would be low low density residential. There'd probably be a community septic system. And some communities are very excited about doing that, and then others are nah. We're not we're not going to let you do that. We want it to be farmland. How far outside of the city do you have to go to uh, to get that kind of land? Oh, I, I'm I'm finding big parcels of dirt available in Dayton, Minnesota. You know, St. Michael out in Corcoran, um, Rogers, Otsego. There, it's all over. There's tons of land out there. It's just a matter of you know how far do you want to go and what is your end game because let's say you save up your whole life to buy a million dollar piece of land and you buy the land, build your cabin, build your house, whatever. And all of a sudden you get to that point of where you say, hey, your budget's blown now and the Musaline's never going to come out there. And now your kids are trying to sell that, you know, once you've passed away or they, they don't want to live there. Then right. what? You know, and, and some people say, I don't care. That's their problem. But on the other hand, that's kind of irresponsible generational wealth, you know, where you, if you are going to give your kids something someday, I think that, you know, you should set them up for success too. That, for sure. recognize that, hey, my kids don't want this when I'm, you know, healthy. And so maybe I should sell it and get it sold so that they can do something. I don't know. I think that's hard. My dad called me a couple months ago and said, I found this hobby farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm going to buy it and you guys can run it. And I said, uh, no, no, I thank wish you. I had your dad. I'd love that. <laughs> I'd be like, let's grow pumpkins. We'll have apple trees over here. I'll get a track. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, get a I'll connect you. You guys can get on that hobby train farm and have your own yeah. multi-generational spot. I, I think Rudy's back on. My family. I, just, oh, I hey, was going to say. I was going to say. My dad would ask me to buy it for him. Right. Oh yeah. Rather than run it. <laughs> <laughs> I think my family is more of a multi-generational cabin kind of family, where we could buy a cabin or an old resort. And have everybody have their own little cabin and everybody would love that, you know? Yeah, that would be really cool. There are some cute little resorts up uh, up north that probably, I mean, some of them are just older and need some rehab, but they'd be fun to run. Totally. A lot of work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A ton of work. Well, uh, Chris, we're talking about your topic Rooneyville and just uh, what do you think people need to consider if they're thinking about multi-generational housing, like what are the big pain points that they could experience that they might not know about? Yeah, I, I apologize. I don't know what happened, something in my street hit. I had to actually get in my car and get away because my car wouldn't go off my house internet that wasn't working. So oh, anyways, uh, yeah, I know. But we have, uh, I'll tell you, I think the biggest thing, I know this would be maybe an issue on, on my end is, uh, determining who's in charge of what you know I think when you bring multi-families together like that it might be a there could be an issue (laughs) with uh, people you know like who's in charge you know I mean if it's your parents you know now are are they in charge of your kids and I think just making sure that you have the rules straight from the beginning and that you are able to create privacy and getaway so it's not like you're stuck with someone every day and and that's the whole the whole, I mean, and we kind of joked about it, but the whole Rooneyville concept is based on, it could be completely two separate living areas that could open up and that you could share, but it's not like you have to be with them every second, or, you know, if you're going to the kitchen, you got to be quiet because their bedroom's right behind it kind of thing. So um, I think it's important that, you know, that it's completely separate. And I think that it could last longer, in my opinion, that way. You, um, so you're a big advocate of like setting communication and setting boundaries in addition to thinking through what you want in that build. You got it, 100%. And I think, I think by setting those boundaries, you'll determine what's going to happen in that build. You know, but yeah. I, and I, and I think, and I, I'm sorry, again, I don't know what you guys all talked about, but I think things that are holding it back are, you know, um, zoning zoning laws and and codes you know that uh, these each county has and how you you know you can't have a second kitchen because they think you're going to rent it out but i don't know well, i, I know many numbers, 
If the numbers continue on this trajectory and we're looking for better ways to take care of an aging population because the boomer generation is so large, zoning is going to have to change. Something's going to have to change because people can't afford the number one. There's not, I know that right now there are openings in the senior living apartments, like you mentioned earlier, Andy, but it's not affordable for a lot of people, especially if they don't ha have that long-term healthcare insurance. Well, unless, and, you think, unless you think a two bedroom apartment for three grand a month is affordable. I think that's insane. Yeah. And, and it's also like from a time constraint perspective, we're all so strapped for time these days. Like you just can't make that work with your lifestyle. It's just so much easier to have someone live next door or have the basement apartment or whatever, whatever that looks like in your situation. You know, I, I will, let me retract just a little bit. Cause I, I want to, I want to do want to say this. I don't want to leave people with the impression that I don't think that that product has a need because I do think there's a need for that product mm -hmm. of that style of housing. Because like my client, she goes, you know, it's really nice for me because she goes, I live alone. And she goes for $28 a day, I can have three meals down in the cafeteria. I get to, you know, talk with my girlfriends, you know, um, meet new people. She goes, I actually enjoy the social aspect instead of just living in an apartment by herself. So she right. pay more to live there. Um, because of that. And then she likes the fact that she doesn't have to cook. So even if she wanted to cook, she doesn't have to. Um, that is super valuable, but it's not for everybody. No. Right. But I mean, it's, it's, it's again, that God bless America, man. That's that, that is a, you know, there's different kinds of hotels too. There's different kinds of cars. There's different kinds of housing. There's everybody has different thoughts, needs. And that, that's what I think makes this, you know, housing industry so much fun is that there's, there's always a changing perspective of what is in need. And I, I do agree that um, I think over the next, you know, five to 10 years, Chris and I will be seeing more cities um, revisiting their zoning. And, but where you have to be careful is because what people fear is, is that all of a sudden there's a loophole in the zoning. And now all of a sudden now they build up, you know, uh, some kind of a, whatever you don't want living next to you, whatever that means, right? So if it's, now you don't want a triplex and there's a triplex down the street now. And for whatever reason that bugs you, the, the people that they, they also have opinions and they get to vote. And so that's again, the cool part of a democracy, right? You get to all put your opinion in there. But I think that a lot of the rules of zoning and everything else was written so long ago that it, it should be revisited. And I think that that's just fair, you know, saying that, hey, let's start taking care of each other. And, you know, and. So last thoughts on multi-generational housing, which I'm sure we'll cover this topic again in the coming months, because I feel like there's so much more we could talk about with this. What do you guys think are the first steps? If someone's thinking about, multi-generational housing or trying to explore what their options are with aging parents or with young kids and, and school at home and, and working situations changing, what should they do? I think number one, you need to kind of figure out if you can do it. And just, you gotta explore it. You gotta explore the financial part of it. Who's doing what, what kind of chores each person's doing and how you're gonna live. And if it's uh, totally split up and, you know, and say the parents don't want you to have parties but you like to party I mean that could be a problem and then who's who's taking care of the kids and things like that I think that's to me that's number one and then everything else kind of falls into place after that I think that's funny because that'll be Chris the dad living with his kids the partier <laughs> yeah <laughs> your, your dad's little apartment downstairs do -do 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 Chris is down there having a rave. Um, no, I think that, you know, I guess what, what I would look at too is this, is that, you know, I think if you, you, you don't use it, you lose it. So there's a lot of people that say, oh, I'm getting older. I shouldn't have stairs. Well, guess what? Also you get weaker and weaker and you don't do stairs. You, you kind of lose those muscles. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I tell you, I, I say push it as long as you can, as far as you can. I've seen some of my clients in the past live in houses well into their nineties and mowing the grass, taking care of their, going grocery shopping, and then there's other people I've seen where they start losing that dexterity when they're in their seventies. So, you know, it, it really is the individual and starting with, I think a lot of families do try to, when they get to that point of where they're older, I don't want to say that the, the last phase, but let's call it the last phase. They generally want to move towards their family. Um, they want to be around people that they know and trust and love. And so I think location is important. Um, I think, you know, that there's a lot of times where, you know, there's expensive housing and, and mom or dad can't move close to the kids because the kids have great jobs and they maybe live in an area that's exclusive. And then you might want to take a look at doing the renovation or the, you know, move mom, dad in, whatever. But 
you know, when it starts with it, you got to talk to your family first. I talk to the family and see if they even want you around. Right. And then if the kids, they, they're like, yeah, you know what, dad? Yeah. Yeah. You can maybe live down the street and we won't move. But if you also think your kids are going to just let you move in, I think those conversations you've had years in advance. Saying, oh yeah. Hey, here's where I'm at. This is what I'm thinking. You guys think I'm crazy. You know, Hey, over the next couple of years, let's build you guys a house. I'll throw 200 grand at the house. If you guys let me have the basement or whatever, you know, or 150,000, whatever it is, you know, and, um, or 10 grand, I don't know. I mean, maybe mom, dad doesn't have that much money. So, you know, and then at that point you may make different decisions, but at least you're making them as a family and everybody knows what's coming and it's no shocker. And everyone's on the same page. Right. Yeah, I think you hit on something there, Andy, that I find out a lot after the home becomes an estate and the parents pass away. And, yeah. you know, if you have multiple siblings, you know, and, and Andy got 150 grand and, you know, once you sell it, we should split that up in three ways. That stuff just got to get understood <laughs> from the beginning because that's, uh, I, mean, I I've just seen so many families break up over um, that, not this particular situation, but. Um, misunderstandings that people didn't describe exactly what they wanted and how they wanted it to happen, you know. Clear so. communication and not being passive aggressive are the two things that will make your your future successful in multi-gen yeah. housing. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks guys. You get a whole <laughs> round of applause on that one. <laughs> you guys have task for you guys? We are low on time, but we have some questions from last week. So we're going to play lightning round questions, guys. Okay. Question number one, best home security system you recommend? Dog. A dog? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I'm not, I, I've never into the security systems. I think now with cameras and rings and all that kind of stuff, I mean, I think that deters a lot of people, but I don't know. I've, I've, I've always had a security system and I've never used it. Oh, interesting. I don't know if you want to announce that on the show, but for, for under a thousand, right. yeah, under a thousand bucks, you could have a ring doorbell system and spotlight system installed in your house, but you have to have everything. You got to check it and make sure the batteries are running. So the one time you do count on it and it doesn't work, you know, that's the only, it requires attention. That's so if you're not an attention giver, um, maybe that's not the right system for you. You should have somebody come in and retrofit your house, hardwire things where they actually have hard juice running through them so yeah. that everything is, you know, wired together. But that, that, I mean, that gets into the thousands fast. I, I just looked at it. I was almost at eight grand. Oh my gosh. Yep. But I wanted all my backyard, my front yard, my garage, you know, and that, it, what's funny is you get one little kid that smacks a window and steals a bag out of a car and all of a sudden you spend eight grand, uh, you know, it's kind of dumb, but whatever. Did someone steal something well, out of your driveway? Yeah, we had, um, this was two years ago, our whole neighborhood, these guys went down the street and would look in the windows of every car and smash the window grab the stuff and move on. And I don't think anybody knew what was going on until the next morning. And it was like, they hit like 50 people in a row. They went through Brooklyn park the week before they hit Champlain the week after that. I'm like, why would you smash a window risk going to jail over stealing a bag of kids like tennis shoes, you know, in the backseat of a car. Dumb. I, I, especially with all that cash in your house, Andy, I think you should protect it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've got all those bitcoins you sold me, Rooney. They're all laying yep, on yep. my house everywhere. Here we go. Hey, you're, if I did, you'd be lucky. <laughs> Question two. I'm going to start the process of buying a home from a family member. Any tips or advice on things to do to save money or streamline the process? Ex explain to them, Courtney, again, what the tips are for multi-generational uh, getting into it with family. Because I think it's the same exact thing, you know. Communicate <laughs> and set boundaries. There you go. And well, uh, to the seller, ask, ask up front, what, what, what are you looking for? And see if those terms meet your needs, because, you know, wheeling and dealing with something where you don't think it's priced right. You may want to negotiate in the, you, you know, that person probably better than anybody. So let's say it's your uncle and your uncle wants to sell it for a million dollars and you think it's worth a half a million dollars. What you should do politely is just say to your uncle, I'd love to buy the property from you. Um, I know what you want. I really can't afford that. And I respect you. So if you ever get to the point where you'd consider half a million dollars, let me know. Um, so then you don't get mad at each other, right? Just from the negotiations, number one. Number two, you can either hire an attorney, you can hire a real estate agent that, you know, there's limited services available. You don't have to pay a real estate agent a full 7% to do this. Um, a lot of real estate agents will do it for 1% of the sale price where they sit down, do all the paperwork, coordinate all the closings, 
do all of the admin stuff and make sure all the T's are cross I's are dotted. And I think it's very, you know, money well-earned, um, you know, by the agents because, you know, they do a lot for that. And, and I know a lot of agents that will gladly do that, including myself. I do it actually probably three, four times a year for people. And then at the very end, if there's anything that isn't, if there's other family members involved, like if it's at the end of an estate or it's like mom's just losing, you know, her, her wits and she's on her way to a memory care center, um, make sure that there's other people involved that are witnessing what's happening. I always say that's the best way. So when there's, you know, two or three sets of ears that hear the conversation and are there when everything gets signed, then everything is fair. Versus if it was just you and them and then people come back at you and retaliate. Um, that's, that's just with family dealing. You know, that's me. Awesome advice today, guys. Uh, Andrew left us a nice comment to wrap up today about that whole farming segment we had. Uh, or two minutes we had. I can picture Andy in bib overalls, a straw hat, tooling around on a tractor in an apple orchard. I mean, let's live in the dream right there. Uh, Andrew's a weirdo. And he, well, actually, the funny thing is, I he knows that because he's a buddy of mine. And I actually looked at, I put an offering on an apple orchard two years ago. That would be so cool. I just wouldn't want to run it. I think that'd be so much fun. I, I think it would be, I would, but see, I love people too, you know, in doses. Like I'd do the crazy Saturday at the farm and then I wouldn't talk to anybody for three days. But, you know, I mean, I would, I would love it. Oh, well, today was fun, guys. Was such an interesting topic. Next week, we are chatting about, what are we chatting about next week? Uh, we're talking about choosing a house versus choosing a lifestyle. So if you have questions about how to choose a house versus choosing a lifestyle, submit them to us this week. We are thrilled to be here today, thrilled to be here next week. Be sure to like and follow us on social media and on your preferred podcasting app. Give us a review if you have not done so already. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye, guys. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Real Estate Radio Hour. Don't forget to visit our website, realestateradiohour.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast listening app. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or sharing us with a friend. Until next time, stay awesome, Twin Cities.